Okay. Well, this morning we have a, another handout uh, as Charles is distributing, so uh, we'll get to that in, in a moment. <laughs> uh, but if you have your Bible this morning, please open up to the book of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. This morning we have our third study in this verse-by-verse study through the book of Daniel. And today we have one of the most exciting chapters in the entire book. In fact, they're all exciting. Uh, But this one is particularly exciting. Daniel chapter 2 is the first of several chapters in the book of Daniel that contains significant and detailed prophecy concerning future events. And that prophecy concerning future events comes via a dream that was had by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, this chapter is not only an exciting chapter in the book of Daniel, it's really one of the most exciting chapters in the whole of the Bible and one of the most important chapters concerning the subject of prophecy in the entire Bible. And what's interesting is that it's not a standalone chapter. Uh, The themes of Daniel chapter 2 are repeated again in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, We'll come on to that in a few weeks' time. There is a significant difference in as much as Daniel chapter 2 looks at things from man's perspective. Daniel chapter 7 looks at things from God's perspective. Now, that may not make any sense to you now, but come the end of today, I think that might make some more sense. Uh, But it's not just the book of Daniel in which common themes uh, are found. Uh, The events of Daniel chapter 2 that are prophesied about in Daniel chapter 2 are also referenced in the book of Revelation, Uh, particularly Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17, and also Revelation chapter 19. Now, we're not going to look at all of those passages today. Uh, We will do when we get through Daniel chapter 7, 8, and 9 in particular. Um, But I just want you to know Uh, up front that this chapter doesn't come in isolation but what this chapter does is it provides a very important framework for understanding God's dealings with the nations and God's dealing with uh, Israel concerning future events and this has direct implications for us today because we are living today in the time period spoken of by Daniel here in Daniel chapter 2 and If we learn anything from this uh, today, uh, if we learn anything from a study of Bible prophecy, it should be this, that we can have absolute confidence in God and absolute confidence in his word. And that is one of the things that happens in our hearts as we study Bible prophecy. We grow in 
confidence in the things of God. We grow in our confidence in the things of his word. Uh, And this morning as we study this important chapter, I believe as we uh, see what the Lord has to say here in Daniel chapter 2, those things will be true of each and every one of us, that we will leave this place more confident in the Lord and more confident in the truth of his word, uh, having spent some time studying prophecy here in the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 2. Now, Daniel chapter 2 opens with another time reference. Notice at the beginning of Daniel chapter 2 verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. The second year. Now you'll recall last week as we studied Daniel chapter 1, that the book of Daniel in chapter 1 and verse 1 opens in the year 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem in what would uh, be the first of three waves of attack against uh, Judah and against Jerusalem, culminating in the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem in 586 BC. Uh, But in that first attack on Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar took away thousands of the inhabitants of Judah He took them away into captivity in Babylon, uh, including the best and the brightest of the nobility of the royal class uh, in Jerusalem, uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar commanded to be brought into his courts to undergo an intensive training program in order to train them to serve uh, in the palace and in the government uh, of Babylon. And among those young men that were brought into the king's court to be trained Uh, in the ways of the kingdom of Babylon and to be trained to serve the king of Babylon uh, were Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you'll recall last week that Daniel and his friends found themselves in something of a difficult situation there in the king's court. Uh, Not only did they have a new home hundreds of miles away from uh, their home that they knew, They were given a completely new education. They were given new food to eat and they were given new names. No longer were they to be known by their Hebrew names, which honored the true and the living God of Israel, but they were to be known by Babylonian names, which honored the many gods of Babylon. And all of that had the intention uh, of indoctrinating completely uh, all these young men who had been brought from uh, Judah into the culture and into the religion and into the ways of the pagan city of Babylon. And so these four young men, who were only teenagers at this time, faced massive pressure, massive temptation to conform to the ways of the pagan world around them. They faced (coughs) massive temptation to give their hearts to Babylon. But of course, you'll recall in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, Daniel, together with his friends, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He purposed in his heart. He made the decision, he made the choice, he made the determination that whatever situation he found themselves in, no matter how uh, big the temptation was to compromise with the things of the world or 
with the temptations of the flesh, he would above all serve and honor the Lord his God. And that is precisely what they did. And you'll recall by the end of the chapter, uh, the Lord honored them as they had honored him. And the Lord blessed them mightily in the court of the king, uh, not only giving Daniel and his friends great favor in the sight of all the court officials, uh, but God blessed them greatly in wisdom and understanding and specifically according to verse 20 and verse 17 in understanding dreams and visions and that specific gift from God in understanding dreams and visions becomes very significant now as we get into chapter 2 and so chapter 2 begins then in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign so this would be the second or third year of Daniel and his friends time in the court of the king of Babylon Maybe they were coming to the end of their three-year training program. Maybe they had just completed it. Uh, but here they were amongst the wise men uh, in the king's court uh, of Babylon. Uh, and then in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the king of all the known world, the most powerful man in the world, he had dreams. And these dreams were the kind of dreams that gave him trouble. Serious trouble, so much so that he couldn't <coughs> sleep. Now, I don't know if any of you have had that experience. We don't tend to call them dreams. We tend to call them nightmares. And, you know, dreams are funny things, aren't they? You know, how they sort of conjure up in our mind oftentimes. And sometimes we remember our dreams. Sometimes we, re we have good dreams. Then if you ever had a good dream and you've woken up and you thought, oh, no, I want to go back to sleep. It was so good. Uh, but then there are times when we can have bad dreams, you know, really awful dreams. And, of course, dreams can be very powerful because they're, they're very real while you're dreaming uh, the, the, the dream and sometimes you just don't want to go to sleep because you can't face uh, that dream again well that was the situation that Nebuchadnezzar was in here uh, and you'll notice it says that he had dreams plural uh, and it would appear as we read through the rest of the chapter that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was dreaming about the same thing over and over again uh, and what he was dreaming about was greatly troubling him was disturbing him and he didn't want to sleep because of it now that's an important point in the narrative by the way this dream that Nebuchadnezzar was having greatly disturbed him greatly disturbed him he's the ruler of the known world he can do whatever he wants he can have whatever he wants but he's being tormented by this dream he keeps on having remember that verse 2 then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And so they came and they stood before the king. And so the king here, he brings in all the wise men, uh, all the, uh, the, the, the people who claim to be able to sort of contact spirits and contact the gods, uh, everyone who says they can do anything. Uh, the Chaldeans 
Uh, while that could be a general term for all the people of Babylon, here it's used in a more specific sense of a particular uh, upper class of wise men uh, who served in the court of the king. And so he basically pulled in everybody he could uh, possibly find to come and help him uh, interpret and understand this dream he had been having and had been disturbing him so greatly. And so, verse 3, the king said to them, this gathering of the, the great and the good, the wisest uh, men in all of the land, he said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And so verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now we'll just hold it there a second. Slight interruption. Uh, what is interesting about the book of Daniel is the book of Daniel is the only book in the whole New Testament that was originally written in two different languages. Uh, as you all know, the Old Testament, uh, by and large, is written in the Hebrew language, the language uh, of the Jews. Uh, but here in the book of Daniel, beginning here in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4, Daniel now in writing switches from the Hebrew language into the Aramaic language. And from chapter 2 verse 4 all the way through to the end of chapter 7, that whole section now in the original language is written in Aramaic and not in Hebrew. Now, why did Daniel decide to start writing in Aramaic? Well, we don't know uh, for certain. But what is interesting is the division between the languages in the book of Daniel provides a, a good outline of the book of Daniel. Uh, and this is marked on the outlines that you had uh, a couple of weeks ago that looked like uh, this here. And on um, uh, the bottom section there, you'll notice that chapter 1 was written in Hebrew. And chapter 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic, and chapters 8 through 12 is back to being written in Hebrew again. Uh, and in chapters 2 through 7, Daniel is writing primarily concerning the Gentile nations. And so it actually makes a lot of sense that he wrote in Aramaic, which was the language of the Gentiles. It was the common language of the Gentiles in that day, and it was the language of Babylon. And so because he was writing primarily concerning the Gentile nations, he wrote in a language that the Gentile nations would be able to understand. But from chapter 8 on through chapter 12, Daniel is writing primarily concerning the nation of Israel. And so he switches back to writing in the Hebrew language, the language of Israel, because that is to whom he is writing. And so just a, a little aside uh, there, but back to verse 4. Then the Chaldean spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, which was the common refrain when you went into the, uh, to the king. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Now, so far so good. As far as the Chaldeans and all these wise men were concerned, nothing abnormal at this point. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for the king to have kind of dreams or questions or queries. It wasn't uncommon for him to summon the wise men into his presence uh, to answer his questions. And so here they come, pretty routine this happens quite a bit no problem okay king you just tell us your dream and then we will give you the interpretation no problem nothing unusual nothing abnormal everything's okay now 
for these uh, wise men, these Chaldeans, these uh, people who claimed to be able to contact uh, the gods and who had these kinds of understanding, um, they would often interpret dreams. But of course, it's the kind of thing that you see around today oftentimes with you know, fortune tellers and all these kinds of things as you go in and, and, and they say something and you're like, well, I mean, you could be saying anything. I mean, you could just be making this stuff up. And of course, they usually are. And it's just made up. And so usually you can imagine these guys would go into the presence of the king and they'd uh, listen to what he said. You had a dream. Okay, uh, blah, blah, blah. Yes, okay, this is the interpretation that the king would be like, okay, no problem, fine, and, and let them go. And it didn't really matter what they said. They could just, you know, just say anything. The king would know no difference. And he believed them and would believe what he was told. But notice in verse 5 there is a twist. They said, King, tell us your dream, we'll give you the interpretation. But verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. You see what's happening. Now, this, of course, it, it's, this is the ultimate ultimatum, the ultimate all-or-nothing situation. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, right, tell me the dream and the interpretation, uh, and if you do it, I will give you all the riches of Babylon. If you don't do it, I'm going to chop you up into pieces. Okay, so this is very much an all-or-nothing situation. And by the way, when the king said he was going to chop them up into pieces, he wasn't kidding. Uh, remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't a nice guy. If you recall last week, uh, there was a, a king of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar was on one of his raids who he captured the king of Judah. And what Nebuchadnezzar did was he pulled the king's sons out in front of him and he had the, uh, the king's sons killed before his eyes and then he burnt out his eyes and blinded him uh, so that the last thing he ever remembered seeing was the death of his sons before his eyes. It's pretty horrific. But that was Nebuchadnezzar. That's the kind of thing that he did. He wouldn't bat an eyelid to chop these guys up into pieces. So this is a serious situation. This is a serious situation. And of course, the big problem is that this time Nebuchadnezzar not only wants them to tell him the interpretation of the dream, he wants them to tell him the dream itself. Oh, dear. These guys, this wasn't what they did. I mean, they didn't really have any supernatural you know power they managed to fob nebuchadnezzar off quite a few times no doubt but nebuchadnezzar puts them on the spot and says i don't just want the interpretation i want you to tell me the dream now how did they react verse 7 well they answered and said let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll give the interpretation okay king Tell us the dream, we'll give you the interpretation. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. You see, the king was so disturbed by this dream he knew that this, this was something different. This was something out of the ordinary. He had to know the interpretation. He had to know what it meant. And he had to be sure that what he was told it, was, it meant was correct. 
And so he thought in his mind, right, if these guys are worth their salt and if these guys can really do what they say they can do, if they can interpret the dream, then prove that your interpretation is going to be true by telling me, that, telling me what the dream is. So if you say you can access the gods and what have you and you know this supernatural information, then tell me what the dream is first and then I'll know that the interpretation you give me is true. And so, verse 10, the Chaldeans answered and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. Come on, king. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and therefore, uh, sorry, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods. But here's the problem the gods' dwelling is not with flesh. Interesting. So the king wants to know the dream. They don't know the dream and they say, King, what you want to know is impossible. Nobody knows that. Nobody can know that. If anybody knows it, it's the gods, but there's a problem because the gods are up there, out there somewhere, and the gods are not here. The gods' dwellings is not with flesh. Now that's a really interesting statement. That's a really interesting statement. The gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. You see, when it came down to it, these Babylonian wise men, they had no relationship with any God whatsoever. They had no personal knowledge of a God. They believed in the gods, they all did, but the gods, they, they were out there somewhere. You know, we, we can't really know the minds of the gods. We don't know what the gods want. We don't know what the gods think. I mean, the gods certainly uh, aren't really interested in what's going on here and around. You know, the gods are just some sort of, you know, impersonal essence out there somewhere. And, you know, that is the view that many people today have of God, that he's just some distant god out there somewhere who, you know, is unknowable and is impersonal and he's probably not really interested in what's going on in the world, certainly not interested in what's going on in my life. But you see, like these wise men, so-called, who were seeking the truth about this dream, all the wisdom that they had and all the wisdom of the world and all the ways of the world couldn't help them discover the truth. And so it is today. We live in a world where everybody is trying to discover what is true and they're looking to the wisdom of men and the wisdom of this world and they're looking everywhere except unto God and what happens? Well, we end up in total confusion and total chaos. And we see it in the world around us today. Uh, and this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ brings such hope to humanity because while the Babylonian gods may, dwelling may not have been with flesh because really they were false gods and never really existed Daniel's God the God of Israel the true and the living God he became flesh he became flesh and he dwelt among us and his name was and is Jesus and so while the Babylonians' concept of God, they were distant, they know nothing about what's going on in this world, the true and the living God came and he 
was born into this world and he walked on this world and he was tempted in every way that we are tempted and he experienced everything that we experienced. He knows our weaknesses because he has been here. He has experienced it. And then he suffered and then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and he didn't stay dead of course because he conquered sin and death when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And this is, see, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of the world. Every other religion has gods who are up there, out there somewhere. Only Christianity. In only Christianity did God come down to earth, dwell among men, experience the things that we experience walked where we walked, ate the food that we ate, was tempted, so on and so forth. And he did so in order to redeem us from our sins. And so what we see here in the court of the king is utter hopelessness. All the wisdom of the world cannot help the king. And so, verse 12, for this reason, the king was angry and very furious. Not just angry, he was very furious too. And he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Because remember, Daniel was among that class of wise men. But of course, there was one big difference between Daniel and his friends and the others. And that is that the wisdom Daniel had was a different kind of wisdom. All those other wise men, they had a wisdom, but it was the wisdom of men. It was an earthly wisdom. But Daniel and his friends, they had a different kind of wisdom. They had the wisdom from above. They had the wisdom that came from God. And so verse 14, this wisdom comes to the fore. Notice verse 14. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. Now, here's Arioch, the captains of the king's, king's guard, and Daniel has a conversation with him. Now, why is Arioch there at Daniel's house? Well, he's there to kill him. He's the one that Nebuchadnezzar had put in charge of killing all the wise men. And so he shows up at Daniel's place. Arioch is going to be Daniel's executioner. And so how does Daniel respond to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard? Does he respond with panic? Does he respond with fear? Verse 14 says, he responded with counsel and wisdom. If Daniel had the wisdom of men, it would have been with panic and fear that Daniel spoke. But you see, Daniel had the wisdom that came from God. And so panic and fear were nowhere to be seen. Even though the executioner was standing at the door. Because Daniel had the wisdom from above 
and he knew that his life was in God's hands. So he didn't panic and he wasn't afraid. Whatever happened, he knew God was in control. He knew his life was in God's hands. And so, verse 16, Daniel went in and he asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. And so, Daniel asked of Ariok, the captain of the king's guard. Ariok gave him permission. And then he went into the court of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who had just decreed his death. Now, just get the picture here. I mean, this is some serious stuff. This is quite an intense scene. Nebuchadnezzar has just commanded his death, and here he now waltzes into his presence. Now, this was very bold. Very bold of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a man to be messed with. But there Daniel goes into his presence. And what did Daniel ask? He asked for time that he may tell the king the interpretation. Now talk about potentially digging yourself a big hole here. King, if you give me time, I will give you the interpretation. Now that tells us that Daniel didn't have the interpretation at this point he asked for time now Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a nice guy and walking into his presence Nebuchadnezzar could have had his head lopped off just like that but he didn't now he's asking for time if Daniel doesn't come up with this dream the king ain't going to be happy and it's not just going to be the head chopped off. It's going to probably be the slowest and most painful and excruciating death you could imagine. You don't mess with the king. So this was bold, but this was also a massive step of faith from Daniel. His faith was in God. And so he asks for time to tell the interpretation. And so verse 17 Daniel then, what did he do? He was given time by God's grace and he went to his house and made the decision known to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Why? So that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. And so Daniel is in one of those situations where only God could meet his need. There was no way in the world that he could find out what he needed to know in order to save his life. There was no people that he could ask. There was no books he could read. Nothing. Daniel was in a situation where God and only God could meet his need. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a similar situation where you face something in life and you suddenly have this realization that, you know what, I cannot do anything here. And you know what, my friends can't do anything. My parents can't do anything. Nobody can help me. Nobody can sort this thing out. And you find yourself completely and totally dependent upon the Lord because the Lord is the only one that can meet the need. 
And I tell you, that is a scary place to be. But it is also the best place to be. Because it is in those moments that we realize our utter inadequacy before God and we pour ourselves uh, out unto him in complete dependence. You know, when Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It is this kind of a situation where you have no choice but to offer yourself as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Lord, my life is completely in your hands. I can do nothing here. Only you can do it in accordance with your will. And so what do they do? Daniel goes to his friends and they pour out their hearts before the Lord in prayer. And I tell you, this is where our biggest battles are won. It is on our knees in prayer before we ever come face to face with them. You know, oftentimes prayer is our last resort. I'll try and solve my problem. It didn't work. I'll get somebody else to try and solve my problem. I'll Google it. I'll read a book. Blah, blah, blah. You know that? Oh, okay. Lord, I guess I'll just pray about this. Why so often is that the case? Our first response should always be to go to our knees in prayer and to the Lord, to turn to him first, to commit the situation to him and then trust him to bring to pass whatever it is according to his will. So, Daniel prays with his friends, verse 19. Notice, God answers the prayer. The secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And so what did Daniel do? Well, he blessed the God of heaven. And this declaration of praise is, is wonderful. And this is a great sort of meditation. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and now have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. And so notice Daniel, he prayed to the Lord. He then heard from the Lord and he responded by giving thanks and praise to the Lord. It begins by going to the Lord. It ends by going to the Lord. And that's how it should be for all of us. And there's lots we could get into, but we have to move on. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. And so Ariot quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I, ha I have found a man, notice. I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. So the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember that was his Babylonian name uh, that was changed from his Hebrew name Daniel. 
The king said to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Interesting opening statement. So, King, I just just want to make this very clear. I just want to remind you, you asked everybody in the whole world, and none of them could give you the answer. Okay, I just want to point that out. just want to make that clear. All the wisdom of this world couldn't give you the answer you're looking for. Okay. Now we've got that out of the way, verse 28. But, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions uh, of your head upon your bed were these. Now just notice there very quickly how Daniel responds. He doesn't say, King, all your wise men, they put all their heads together and none of them could give you the answer that you wanted. But I, Daniel, am the one. Oh, yes. I am the wisest of them all. I have the answer. Could have done that, couldn't he? It would have been very easy for him to do that. But no, Daniel takes no credit for himself because he didn't deserve any credit because he didn't do anything. This was all of God. And so it's not I, Daniel, can answer your question, King. It's there is a God in heaven. And notice how, and this, this is wonderful, notice how God is using Daniel to point others back to him. And there's always a temptation that when God uses us and he blesses us, that there's a temptation to think, oh, well, you know, I mean, you know, it is me, of course. It must be because of all that good stuff I've been doing lately, you know, that the Lord has chosen me to be his vessel to be used in this way. And there's always a temptation to pride, but we must remember that if the Lord uses us uh, for any reason and in any way, you know, in the church or in the world, we need to understand that it is the Lord who is at work in us and through us. And if the Lord is using us, it's so that we can point people back to him. Not so we can point people to ourselves, hey, look at me, look how good I am, but that we can point people back to him because we point and say, look, this isn't me really, this is the Lord who's working in and through me. And that is God's will and purpose for all of us, to use us in such a way so that we may point others uh, to him. Anyhow, so verse 28, here's what Daniel says to the king. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were on your bed, about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes, uh, who make known the interpretation of the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. And so verse 31 now, he tells the king his dream. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. And this is why you have a handout. And this is why we have this on the screen. A great image. A great statue, literally. There it is. This is what the king saw in his dream. Notice. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome, which could also be translated terrifying. This image's head was of fine gold. Notice the head of gold. Right on cue. That's all right. (coughs) 
The head was a fine gold. It's chest and arms of silver. Let's see. Its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now Daniel then tells the king the dream that he had. None of the other wise men were able to do it. God had given it to Daniel. Daniel tells him the dream. And what's remarkable is how specific and detailed the description of this dream is. This giant statue Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs made of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, a couple of things to notice as you look. Firstly, that the value or the preciousness of the metals decreases as you go from head to toe. We notice that. They have gold to silver to bronze. We know that. They give out medals, don't they, at the Olympics and so on. And then iron, and then even clay with the iron. Uh, at the bottom and so first thing to note that the metals decrease as you work your way down the image the value of the metals also interestingly actually the strength of the metal increases as you go from top to bottom iron being the strongest and we'll mention that in just a second but what happens here that was so scary is that a stone appeared that was cut without hands remember and it struck the image on the feet and there's the stone the feet smashed to pieces, and then the whole image, all the metals smashed to pieces. And that stone then became a great big mountain, and it replaced the statue. The statue was gone, disappeared, never to be seen again. No trace of it was found, but the mountain remained. The mountain remained. Now, of course, we're all wondering the same thing that the king was wondering. Okay, that's the dream. Okay, but what on earth does any of it mean? And so beginning in verse 36... Daniel gives the interpretation. Now, as we read through this interpretation, um, I just give you a heads up right from the beginning um, that um, the image represents the passage of time. So the earliest time is at the top. The uh, what is actually future is at the bottom, and we'll see that explained as we go through. Now. Verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And whenever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over all. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are this head of gold. So immediately we discover what all these metals and body parts representing the head of gold is nebuchadnezzar the king of babylon and so the head of gold represents the babylonian empire of which nebuchadnezzar is the head and so we're dealing with empires or kingdoms 
particularly those kingdoms that rule over Israel, specifically at the center of all of this, uh, and are the dominant world powers. And so Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. The head of gold is the Babylonian Empire, which uh, really um, became the dominant empire in 606 BC when they uh, defeated and drove back Egypt after conquering Assyria in about 612. And so, and it's also worth noting in what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, is he makes the point that Nebuchadnezzar, you're not king because of your gods, you're king because of the true God of Israel. He's the one who raises up kings. And so he's the one who has given you your throne. And this will become significant when we get to chapter 4. But anyway, so the, the head is the head of gold. But verse 39 but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. So you say, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, but after you, another kingdom, a different kingdom is going to arise. And that kingdom is going to succeed your kingdom. That kingdom is going to conquer your kingdom. So this is where it starts to get a bit scary for Nebuchadnezzar. Your kingdom is going to fall, another kingdom is going to rise, and that kingdom is going to conquer your kingdom. Kingdom And that kingdom, that second kingdom, is represented by the silver chest and arms. Now, we know what empire or what kingdom conquered Babylon. In fact, it actually happens in the book of Daniel. Uh, because when we get to Daniel chapter 5, we shall see uh, the empire of the Medes and the Persians comes against Babylon and conquers Babylon. And so the second empire represented by the silver chest and arms, is the Medo-Persian Empire. Conquered Babylon in 539 BC. We'll see that when we get to Daniel chapter uh, 5. What's interesting, of course, is the chest and the arms. The arms very specifically representing uh, the, the joint kingdom of two people groups, the Medes and the Persians, two groups, two arms. Very specific, very interesting. Uh, and then, notice middle of verse 39... Then another, a third kingdom of bronze will arise, which shall rule over all the earth. So following the Medo-Persian Empire, a third empire will rise up. Now again, from world history, we know what empire that is. The empire that conquered the, the Medes and the Persians was the empire of Greece, which reached its height under Alexander the Great. Uh, and that happened in 331 uh, B.C., uh, and so the third empire is the empire of Greece, uh, ultimately under Alexander the Great, the belly and the thighs of bronze. Now, it's interesting, again, there's, there's two thighs. And after Alexander the Great died, the kingdom of Greece was divided uh, again. There was four, um, four generals that took, but, but only two of those generals established themselves. And so there were, there were two uh, uh, a northern or the southern part of that um, empire. So the third empire is the belly and the thighs of bronze. It is the, the Grecian Empire. Uh, and then verse 40, and this is where it gets interesting. The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and, shat and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And so there's a fourth kingdom, represented by the legs of iron. 
So a fourth kingdom which will succeed the kingdom of Greece. Now again from history we know exactly what that kingdom is. Because in 146 the Roman Empire conquered the Grecian Empire and became the dominant empire of the world even through of course the, the time of Jesus. And so the fourth empire represented is the empire of Rome there. And so so we have a historically accurate prophecy of the ruling empires of the world that will follow Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, written before it ever happened. And that's quite remarkable. And it's quite amazing. And that sort of brings us up, and by the way, the two legs, of course, Rome split into east and west, of course, didn't it? And so you got the two legs. But it's the feet that become interesting. Because you'll notice the feet are partly of iron and partly of clay. So the the feet are sort of part of the fourth empire, but yet there's something different. Take a look at verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, this describes something that has not yet happened. And this is where it becomes very exciting for us, as students of Bible prophecy. Because one thing that happened after the Roman Empire fell, sort of around about 400 or so uh, AD, at least in its form, but yet um, there were elements of the Roman Empire that sort of continued and have continued all the way through to today. And so you look through world history, and and Europe really has been the the, the dominant area of world history for the last 2,000 years. And the feet tell us that there is a kingdom that is going to emerge that is going to be like the Roman Empire and many people refer it to it as a, as a revival of the Roman Empire but it won't be as strong as the original empire it will be part strong and part weak it will be divided uh, and what's significant is on the feet there are ten toes Now, it's not pointed out here, but when we get to chapter 7, and when we get to the book of Revelation, we will find out that those ten toes represent ten kings. And this final ruling world empire will be a confederation composing of ten kings. Now, there's much speculation that's been had as to who those ten kings are and, and what that empire will look like. And I'm not going to engage in speculation. Suffice to say that it's going to happen. And significantly, this will be the final ruling world empire ruled by man before Jesus Christ returns. Because take a look at verse 44. And in the days of these kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And so there is a fifth and final kingdom. (coughs) The first four kingdoms were kingdoms of men. This fifth and final kingdom will be the kingdom of God. The stone cut without hands emphasizes the fact that something or someone will come and will destroy that final ruling empire. Now, we know from the book of Revelation that out of those ten kings, or actually from among those ten kings, will come an eleventh king. An eleventh king will be the Antichrist, and he'll subdue three of the kings, and he'll take control of that final ruling empire. And the stone cut without hands will come, and he will destroy the Antichrist... And he will destroy that final ruling empire and he will destroy completely the rule of man in this world forever. Of course, the stone is Jesus Christ. And this speaks of his second coming. And we read about this in Revelation chapter 19. You don't have time to read it. Note it down. Read it. Later, when Jesus Christ returns, he is the stone that is going to strike the Antichrist and his final kingdom. And Jesus will destroy the rule of man in this world and he will become the king of his kingdom on this earth and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so four kingdoms of men, one eternal kingdom of God. And that final kingdom, uh, here in prophecy, we read about in Revelation chapter 20, it refers to as, as, as a reign of a thousand years before the eternal state is established. And so this final kingdom here is, is the, what is known as the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ uh, on earth. And so... As we look at all of that, it tells us something very, very important. God knows the end from the beginning. And God has already decreed how things are going to go in the future. Jesus Christ is coming back. As surely as Jesus Christ came the first time and fulfilled hundreds of prophecies concerning his first coming, so too he will come the second time. The stone to break the rule of man and the authority of man on this earth and to establish his kingdom of justice and righteousness on the earth. That is the future. That is what is coming. And so, and that is what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar. So how did Nebuchadnezzar respond? We conclude, verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Remember, of course, the king had said, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'll give you riches, honor, in the kingdom of Babylon. So this is his response. He fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, 
Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. That's quite an amazing response from this Nebuchadnezzar, who just presumably a few days earlier was about to kill Daniel. All of a sudden he's falling down on his face before Daniel and he's giving praise to the God of Daniel. And of course that's how it should be when God uses us It should cause people to respond by giving praise to God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar isn't quite where he needs to be, and the Lord will work on Nebuchadnezzar a little bit more when we get to chapter 4. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. Uh, But verse 48, the king promoted Daniel, just as he said, and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'll remember, are their new Babylonian names. Um, he set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Uh, but Daniel, he sat in the gate of the king. And so Daniel is sort of just effectively like the, the, the throne of the kingdom, basically, there. And so quite amazing. And so God is in control of all things. God is in control. And there's lots of things that we can be tempted to do when it comes to Bible prophecy. We look for these ten kings and, 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 and we all love engaging in speculation. You know, reading the newspapers, oh, is, 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 this, is this this and is this that? You know, and that has its place and, and that's good and it's good to be aware of what's going on in the world. But ultimately, the Bible says that the spirit of prophecy, or the whole point of prophecy, is the testimony of Jesus. And it is quite easy to get so distracted by the news and the newspapers of the world that that we forget to live our lives for Jesus. And so knowing that these things are going to come to pass, knowing that God has decreed how things are going to end, that should motivate us to give praise, honor, and glory to God, and it should motivate us just like God used Daniel, that that God would use us to point people to him uh, before the end comes. And so we need to be about the Lord's business. Yes, study Bible prophecy is important. That's what we do. We need to know these things. These things are good for us to know and they're a blessing to to our hearts and they're a great encouragement to us. But let's commit our lives afresh to living for Jesus in these last days, to serving him in the church, to serving him in the world and pointing people to him and the salvation that can be found in and only through Uh, Jesus Christ and so next week Daniel chapter 3 Father we thank you for your word today we ask you to bless your word uh, to our hearts and Lord just as you use Daniel in a quite remarkable way uh, Lord to to reveal yourself in a powerful way to Nebuchadnezzar Lord I just pray that you would use us as your children in powerful ways to reveal you and your truth Uh, Lord to the people in our lives Lord whether it be at work whether it be at school wherever it may be Father, even this week I pray, uh, Lord, that you would just give us that spirit of wisdom. Lord, even as Daniel had, that we may bear witness to the truth and that we may bring your light into many dark situations uh, and that we would do so, Lord, for your glory. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all that you've done for us. Lord, and we offer our lives back to you, Lord, as a sacrifice, that living sacrifice, desiring to be pleasing to you. 
Lord, use us according to your will and purpose, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.